Good morning. Wow, fall break crowd. Creation. We're studying through what we believe. And uh, last week we, we looked at creation God makes, and then we're going to take that a little further this morning into who this God is that makes. And so a little title I put on the top of this is Creation, God, the only God, Yahweh, Jesus creates. That's intentional because the Bible helps us to see who this is clearly. There's no ambiguity on who creates. And we want to see that this morning. There's a little statement here from Galileo in a letter he wrote to the Grand Duchess Christina. And if you want to look up the context of that letter, you're welcome to do that and Google that and read a little history. But Galileo said this in that letter. The Holy Ghost intended to teach us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. The Holy Ghost intended to teach us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Often when we come to the book of Genesis, particularly uh, in our setting, we have a tendency to read Genesis through a lens that Moses, the author, did not intend us to read it through. Uh, Moses wrote Genesis roughly, depending on when you date the Exodus, and that's a whole different, that's a lecture, not a sermon. Uh, roughly 1400 B.C. This is prior to the Enlightenment as a worldview. And the setting of Moses writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is to Israel who has exited Egyptian captivity and they are preparing to enter the promised land. And Moses' intention is to disciple the people of God to know Yahweh, the Lord, King Jesus, who is the one who rescued them from Egyptian slavery. And the reason is so that they would not continue to fall into the snare of false gods, and particularly the false gods of Canaan, where they are going over into to possess and continue to learn, as we talked about last week, a little bit counter and dark narratives that stand opposed to the Lord and His Word. Moses' intent is theological, not scientific. And I just want to warn you, when you come to the book of Genesis, please don't read onto it modern science. It's not there and that's not Moses' intent. And that's all I want to say about that. The word of the Lord is sufficient to give us a framework on how to do good science and interpret all science, whether it's good or bad. And by the way, just because it gets the title science does not make it good. Right? I think if you pay attention to our world, if someone wants to play the trump card, right? And I don't mean like the president. I mean, you know, like playing cards. There's a trump card. It's the card that beats everything else, right? You know, there's a spiritual trump card, and we play that one by saying, God told me, right? Because as soon as God tells you, nobody else can say anything, or they're the unspiritual ones, right? You know that trump card? Well, the, the, the trump card of worldviews is science. Boom. As soon as you say science, and everybody else is anti, Right? And so just because it gets the title science doesn't make it good, bad, or even right. It depends on the framework from which they're coming from. 
So just because you understand Genesis theologically as Moses intended it doesn't mean you're a bad scientist. It means you have the right framework to do good science. Does that make sense? So Moses' intent isn't scientific, so don't expect a scientific lecture proving a certain amount of days of creation or a certain methodology of creation. That's not Moses' intent at all. Moses knew none of that, nor was that his purpose. He wanted to make sure the people of the Lord knew the Lord and not these false, dark, counter-narratives that were about to invade their psyche as they went over into the land. And even to counter the dark narratives they learned while they were in Egypt. What we learn from creation in Genesis 1 and 2 sets the Lord apart. It sets Him apart from the counter-dark narratives. And if you read some of the other literature surrounding this part of the world at the time, man... Moses' account stands in stark contrast to these fake, dark narratives who lose control of created order. At no point in Moses' account, in God's Word, does the Lord lose control. In fact, he stands in absolute control over everything he created, and he loses the reins never. The second thing we learn from Moses' account here of creation about the Lord, Yahweh, King Jesus, who creates, is that he provides in a contrast to these demonic manifestations and their capricious behavior. And then the third thing we will learn here throughout the nature and character of God, and I'm just going to mention that I'm not coming back to these three things. They're just big headings. Um, We learn to see the highlights, and we have highlighted for us the steady and unchanging and eternal nature of Jesus Christ. We learn that God's not fickle. He doesn't shift. He doesn't move from his nature and character. He is who he is, which is why he told Moses, when Moses said, who am I supposed to say you are when they ask me who you are? I am Yahweh. I am what I am. I will be what I am. Which brings me to, I'll get to that in just a second. I want to read you a passage here. In Deuteronomy 32, about what Moses said regarding these fake deities, these false gods that he wants to disciple his people out of. This is in Deuteronomy 32, 16 to 18. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that had come recently. Whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock, capital R, rock, that bore you. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. Moses' intent is to disciple them away from these rising cultural trends that are dark narratives. That are in fact, as Moses said here, demonic in nature and disguised as deities. So our intent this morning is theological, not scientific, because that's Moses' intention. Does that make sense? Now, I hope in all of this, just this isn't, this is, I'm not going to teach this actively, but I hope you see passively that what we're doing with the text is teaching you also how to study your Bible. That when you come to the Bible, you don't bring to it the framework from which you interpret it. It provides the framework in itself on how you interpret it. And, and this, is, this is how you do literature in general. Here's just a literature lesson. You ready? Nothing can never mean 
what it never meant. In other words, the author's intent in its writing is the intent of the words. That's the only way you can know anything, right? Big word, epistemology, how do you know what you know? How do you know knowing, right? Right? The only way you can know anything is to discover the original, the intent. Moses' intent in the text is to know Yahweh. And to prove and to show his people that it is Yahweh who creates and nobody else. Because these others that they're going to go into Canaan and hear these stories, these dark narratives about, are in fact demonic. And he wants them to know the Lord. Now, I chose to use, and and there's going to be uh, uh, 12 observations we have about who the Lord is here because we can't help it because they're there and I don't want to shortchange you in the knowledge of God because I'll stand before Jesus and give an account for what I say to you. And so I want to give you everything that I possibly can give you. I chose Yahweh on purpose. Now, let me me give you a little background here. I actually happened to have the hatchet. Emmett had the hatchet for Old Testament. Dr. Hunt, his nickname was the hatchet. He was tough. It was a 7 a.m. class. Master's level work, right? 7 a.m. That means you had to roll out of bed early to get to the hatchets class. And then, and then I had, not only did I have the hatchet who loved the Old Testament, but I had Dr. Pierce for Hebrew. And Dr. Pierce was very particular to the point that our president wrote a book on the names of God and he used the name Jehovah. And Dr. Pierce confronted our president about the terrible scholarship and even using the name. And, and, and there's reason here. Now, this isn't, I'm not going to say to you, you've got to do what I do, because I think this is an issue we can kind of disagree on and still love Jesus together, okay? But my name's Mitchell or Mitch. If you call me Matthew, chances are I'm not going to know that you're talking to me, right? Because my name's not Matthew. Mitch, Mitchell starts with an M, Matthew starts with an M, but that's it. It's the only similarities. You might say Michael, and I might think you just don't know, you think you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, and I'll just pretend, it's okay. But if you say Matthew, I'm 99% sure you're not talking to me. When the Bible, God has a name, and, and Jehovah isn't it, okay? Jehovah is the, the consonants, Hebrew is an all-consonant language. No vowels in Hebrew. And so Jehovah are the consonants from Yahweh, but there's no J. So Jehovah is a Germanic reformation, um, consonant creation of the consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Elohim, which are supplied phonetically, not actually written. Now that's more scholarship than you asked for this morning, but you need to know. Because the Lord says his name is Yahweh. Now, another little fun piece of trivia. And if you can tell me this trivia at the end of the service, I'll give you a free book on the book cart. See if you can remember. Everybody's like, ooh, free book. I'll pay attention. Here you go. On my very, very first Hebrew vocabulary test, I missed the divine name of God, Yahweh. I did. Missed it. My professor joked that I might not even be saved. How can you not know the name of the Lord? And it's because the name Yahweh is, is a verb of being. It is to be. And so you look at it and you're learning Hebrew and you're learning to translate. You see his name is Yahweh. Yahweh. And Yahweh is, is to be. It, it's, it's a verb of being. And I translated his name and I put it on my vocabulary and it was technically correct. And he counted off. I missed the proper name. I said to be. 
And, and there's a little theological lesson there. His name is Yahweh, and it's because He is. He's the very essence of being. He defines what is. And, and that's bigger than you're going to spend eternity getting to know that. By the way, Jesus, Jesus is the Latinized version of Yeshua, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. There's no, that Jesus was named Jesus on purpose because Yahweh saves. Does that make sense? And so I chose intentionally to educate you theologically accurate this morning. So all 12 of these points begin with Yahweh because his name is Yahweh. Okay? So you do with that what you want. That was free and took more time than I intended to. But I want you to know there's a reason I'm using the name Yahweh because that is his name. Okay? You tracking? All right, here we go. So what do we learn about the nature and character of God in creation? Well, we've got 12 things we're going to learn about the nature of God. Number one, Yahweh is God and there is no other. Yahweh is God, there's no other. Do not be deceived, do not be fooled. There aren't many gods, there is one, and his name is Yahweh. Genesis 1.1 tells us in the beginning, God, now this is the name Elohim, God created the heavens and the earth. You skip over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and in this other account of creation, Moses says this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh God, made the heavens and the earth. What is Moses saying? Moses in chapter 1 uses God, just generic God, Elohim. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he puts Yahweh Elohim together. What's his intent? His intent is to disciple his people that God is none other than Yahweh. That's his point. So right down there in the details of the text, Moses is discipling his people that these gods of Egypt, Baal, Asherah of Canaan, Molech of Canaan, they are not gods. There is one who created and he is none other than the one that rescued you from Egypt and he is Yahweh. Yahweh God. So Yahweh is God and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God. Who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. So do not be deceived. There aren't many gods. There's one God and his name is Yahweh. His name is Jesus Yahweh saves. Second thing we learn about the Lord is that Yahweh creates from nothing and then He forms or fashions what He creates. He forms or He creates, I'm sorry, He creates from nothing, then He forms or fashions what He created. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, you discover there are two different... Now, you have to kind of get into some language here to see this, but it's important. And in English, it uses some different words and you need to know what they mean. He uses a word that means to bring into existence in Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.21, verse 27. I'll post these notes up for you later. And it means to bring into existence. So he made everything from nothing. And then he formed. Genesis 1.7. He formed what he made into shape. Now, Lewis captures this in The Magician's Nephew beautifully. You read it? The kids get their way into Narnia and before Aslan creates light, it's dark and they hear this beautiful singing. And as it begins to rise and crescendo, they begin to see great shapes come out of the earth. As Aslan is creating 
elephants and tigers and lions and trees. It's beautiful. So Yahweh creates from nothing, then he takes what he makes and he begins to fashion it and form it into everything that is. That's beautiful. Well, what does it teach us about the Lord? This is still under number two. It teaches he's mighty. He's powerful. The Lord, Yahweh, Jesus is mighty because he takes... Listen, Jesus needed nothing to create everything. Wow. Nothing. He took, there was nothing. And he spoke and it came into existence. And then he took it and he began to form it into what we know. So we see he's mighty. We see also that his word, his decrees are powerful. He's powerful. So when he speaks, creation has to obey. You'll begin to see this theme as you walk through your Bible that the word of the Lord, the decrees of the Lord are powerful, they're mighty. In other words, God doesn't speak and it just lands and nothing is of effect. We learn that his word is effectual. When he speaks, it stands or it comes into being and it begins to obey him, which is why Jesus is on a boat and they're afraid they're going to drown. And they say, do you not care that we perish? And Jesus stood up and said, peace, be still. Because the waves remember the voice of the one who brought them into existence and they had to obey. So we'll, we'll get to some application on that in just a minute. He's mighty. His word is effectual. He shapes creation, which shows us he's the source of beauty. He's a creator of beautiful things. The third thing we learn about the Lord is that Yahweh is a prophet. He's a prophet. He fashions, and this kind of, you could almost put this a subset of number two, but I said the part, he's a prophet because he fashions by his word. He speaks his word, which is biblically the role of a prophet to speak the word of the Lord. So Yahweh's a prophet. He speaks. You read all the way through chapter 1, and God said, and God said. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse. God said, let there be waters. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. God said, let there be lights. God said, let the waters swarm, right? And so he said, and when he speaks, he speaks powerfully. God's word creates and accomplishes with effect. Isaiah 55, 10 to 11. If you've been around Christianity for a while, you probably know this one. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose, and I shall succeed, or it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's a prophet. So God's word is powerful. God's word is effectual. The fourth thing we read, and we're not going to unpack this one because we've already done a sermon on it. Yahweh is Trinitarian. He's Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He didn't come into being at Christmas. He always has been. And he said he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. So Yahweh is Trinitarian. Number five, we learn that Yahweh is eternal. He's eternal. In the beginning, God created. Now, there's a theological implication here. Right? It isn't in the beginning, God came into existence. In the, in, in the beginning, at the start of time, God said. Meaning, God, Jesus, Yahweh, predates time. He's eternal. He's eternal. He already is, he always has been, he always will be. He has no beginning and he has no end. Therefore, check this out, 
This is an application before the application section. We are not eternal. We're not eternal beings. Only God has eternality. God does not share eternality. I'm going to introduce you to some, th- some theological terms. You ready? You ready? If you can say these, you can have a free book too. Communicable, incommunicable. Incommunicable are the attributes that God has He doesn't share with us. He did not communicate them to us. Communicable are the attributes God has that He shares with us as image bearers. We do not share eternality. Why? Because we have a born-on date. And we have a pass-on date. Right? He has no born-on date. He has no pass-on date. He's eternal. Now, we are mortals who live in immortality forever in some place, which is why it matters what we do with Jesus. Okay? But we are not eternal. God is eternal. He alone is eternal. No beginning, no end. Yahweh is eternal. Which you notice what Moses does. This is all the way back to the introduction, the Deuteronomy 32 passage, when Moses throws a little shade on the gods of Canaan. Remember we talked about being the image of God, a shadow, shading? God, God throws shade on them here when he talks about they sacrificed to demons who were no gods, to gods they had never known, and new gods that have come recently. Right? That, that's shade throwing. That's God with, with a little bit of divine sarcasm. Because he's eternal. No beginning, no end. But what you've done, he says, is you've gone after those gods who came into being recently. Contrasting them with himself, which is Moses' point. is These are not gods. These didn't make, the Lord made. Right? You tracking? Alright? So the Lord is, is eternal. Yahweh is eternal. Number six, Yahweh is living. He's living and he's the source of life. Genesis 1, verse 20 to 31. Then God said, let the water swarm. So he's created from nothing. And now he's bringing into existence out of everything that he created. Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and the birds. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird, and all according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And he goes on through the rest of the chapter, God forming. He is living, and therefore the source of all living. The Lord is alive. He's a living being. We'll get to some implications here in a minute. Number seven, Yahweh is independent. He's independent. No born on date, no pass on date. We already saw last week that the Lord didn't create. We saw this when we talked about Trinity as well. The Lord did not create because of any intrinsic need in himself. He is not needy. He creates because that's what he is. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. And out of his being, he creates because he is who he is. And he's creator. And therefore, as creator, he creates. He's independent. Acts 17, 24 to 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. Right? He needs nothing. He's not needy. He's absolutely independent. Which is one of the reasons, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a rock to stand on. We're needy, he is not. Therefore, he's who we go to in times of need because he lacks no thing. By the way, your practice as a Christian is rooted in the foundation of the knowledge of God. There's no practice from something you don't know and believe, which is why we're teaching this, this, this series on what do we believe because there has to be a place for your feet to land. Does that make sense? 
And it's rooted in who is Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us his name is Yahweh and he alone is God. So we see he's independent and he is the one on whom we land and on whom we stand. Number eight, Yahweh is holy, thus making him transcendent. Some people separate those two characteristics. I'm putting them together for the sake of time, but also because I believe God's transcendence is rooted in his holiness, and that's a whole sermon by itself, but not going to do that this morning. He's holy, thus making him transcendent. Well, what in the world does that mean? God is set apart from creation. He is not creation. He's holy, completely other. Holy is completely other, right? He's holy. And this is where other dark narratives are wrong. They say creation is God, you're God. You have some God in you, creation has some God in it. It's God. And the Lord, we learn, is distinct from, He is holy, He's separate from creation. He is not creation. There's no way you can read Genesis 1 and 2 and come to the conclusion that creation is God. We learn that He makes and He forms, and what He made and what He forms is not Him. Alright, so He sets Himself apart from creation. He's completely other, completely set apart in his being and his works. And he's completely set apart in what he approves. Psalm 50, verse 21. There's a whole Psalm 50. You just read the whole psalm. But this verse stands out because the Lord is speaking to the people about how they have not done right in regard to how they approach him. And he says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. What did they do wrong? They thought he was like them. And he is not. He's holy. He's transcendent. Transcendent means he's above. He's outside of. He stands in control over. So that's Yahweh. Number eight, or that's number eight. Number nine, Yahweh, however, is imminent. There's really, the only good synonym for imminent is near. And it still doesn't quite do the justice of what it means to be imminent. Because it's a little more intimate than near. So I just left it at imminent and let you go Merriam-Webster it. Yahweh is imminent. He's holy. He's completely separate, set apart, transcendent. But he is also imminent. This is where deism gets off track. Says God's out there. He made everything and then he just left it alone to unfold. Now it's up to you. No, no, no. The Bible teaches us that not only is he holy and transcendent, but he is near and actively involved in. We get this throughout the Bible, so there was no way I could put every passage that's there because it's just, it's here, it's all of it, right? So here, here's your reference, right? Go go look at it. This is, and pulled out some examples, which we've spoken of recently. Genesis 18 is an example. And some of them are just right here. They're easy ones, right? The Lord God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. And even after the fall, the Lord interacts with them. Because what does he do? He executes some animals who were innocent, pointing us to the gospel, right? He executes some animals and takes their skins and covers Adam and Eve with them to cover their shame and sets them free in the righteousness of someone who died in their place. Hello? Right? You, and, and, and even there you begin to see these images of the good news that's going to be preached. That there's going to be one who's not guilty of sin. And he is none other than Yahweh, Jesus Christ, eternal Son of God. And he will come and he will die at the hands of the Father in my place for my sin. So that if I repent and believe, I can be clothed with his righteousness and cover my shame. 
right? And so, and so he's imminent, he's near, he's in the garden with them. And in Genesis 18, Yahweh, even after the fall, he comes to eat a meal with, give instruction to and warn Abraham. He's providentially near, meaning not only is he near, he's involved, sustaining and working with us, for us, and against evil. This is really good news, right? God hasn't set the world in motion and left it to unwind. He is near. He's holy, but He is near. There are too many passages to account for the imminence of the Lord. So I just chose this last one here because it's a good, just it says it right here. Romans 8, 28 to 30. It's a good passage to help us see that the holy transcendent God is also near and involved. And we know, we know you need to know some stuff, which is why it matters what you believe. How can Paul say this? Because he knows. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Well, why? Verse 29. Don't pull up short. When you're reading your Bible, don't pull up short. This is why one verse wonders don't do you enough good. <laughs> Right? Memory verses are awesome, but they're not enough. Right? Life verses aren't enough. You pull up, before you get to verse 29, you don't know why. Why is it working for my good? For. Oh, purpose clause. Here's the purpose. For those he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He knew me. He knew you before you existed. And he intended in his knowledge of you to save you and conform you to Jesus. That's really good news, which means you're going to make it. If you're in Christ, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. Because he's actively involved in making sure you make it. Right? In order that... This is great. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called... And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. You're going to make it if you're in Christ. And he's going to see to it because he's near and involved in making sure it happens. This is why you got Genesis 50, 20, which we're going to do a sermon on when we uh, get back to Genesis. We start about the life of Joseph. What they meant for evil, God meant it. Their evil, he meant them doing that for you to save many people. You have to wrestle with that. That's in your Bible. But he is near and working, even when it's hard and don't feel right. He's not absent. He hadn't departed and said, well, good luck. Hope you make it. He's near weaving together the tapestry of life to produce this beautiful end image bearer who's been completed in Christ. So he's holy, but he's near. And then number 10, Yahweh's personal. He's personal. How do we know that? He has a name. He has a name. Don't miss these little details. He has a name. He's not just generic God. He's Yahweh. He's Yahweh. Which is why you'll hear me talk often. And if you pay attention, you'll notice sometimes I use Jesus in place of generic God. And that's on purpose because God has a name. And we see in the Bible that he's fully and finally revealed in Jesus Christ. So let me just say for you as a matter of practical concern, when you're in the public and you want to talk God talk, please talk about Jesus. Do two things for you. You want to make, it'll make it clear, make it clear the object of your faith. Number two, it'll clear a room quickly or draw people to salvation. And that's pretty good. Both of those are okay. 
Right? And if, if you're like me and would prefer, sometimes people just go and just say, Jesus. People are like, boom, got to go. Got to leave. But I didn't get uncomfortable. Or he'll save somebody. And that's good too. Right? So he's personal. He has a name. He relates to created order. John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus is personal. He speaks, and those who know him hear him. Right? Because he's personal. He knows you. He knows the inner workings of your heart. He knows the things you don't tell anybody else. <coughs> Number 11, Yahweh's gracious. Yahweh's gracious. You ever notice? You ever wrestle with the fact that he says, The day you eat of it, you'll die, then they eat of it and don't die? And then we say, well, you know, things started dying and things broke and that's true. But why didn't they die? Because he's gracious. He would pay for their sin. With a sacrifice that they didn't earn, didn't deserve. But he would pay for it anyway because he's gracious and kind. You, you need to be able to, to see that. You need to see that it's not that God doesn't keep his word. He's going to keep it later. Romans 1, or Romans 3, 21 to 26. The sin's going to get paid for later. The animals wasn't enough. That's why Paul writes Romans 3, 21 to 26. You don't know what that says, you can go read it. He passed over that sin. He let it go. He let it go. Because the fullness of time was coming in which the Creator, Jesus Christ, would come. And He would go to the cross and pay for that sin. So that God is just... He pays for sin, but he's the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just, he pays for sin, but he gives us his righteousness because of Jesus. Right? And so he's gracious. He lets it slide because he's going to pay for it later. You could almost say the Lord pays for it on credit because he's good for the cash later. He's gracious. Psalm eighty six fifteen. but you, O Lord... Or a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Completely opposite of these dark narratives that you read about that Israel wrestles with. Isn't it funny how fallen creatures choose darkness over light? You ever wonder what our heart's made of? Just look at why we sin. Just look at the fact that we still choose to sin, right? And it doesn't take you a big intellectual leap to realize, boy, that's that's pretty broke, right? But he's gracious and kind. And twelfth and finally, Yahweh is the king, the ruler, and the sovereign. And this is related to his transcendence. He's the king. He never drops the scepter of his rule. At no point does the Lord drop the scepter. He doesn't fumble the ball. He's the ruler and the sovereign. As a matter of fact, this is not going to be in your notes, but in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, the writer of Hebrews attributes the continued maintenance and upkeep of all of created order to Jesus speaking his word over it even now. (coughs) Meaning the Lord, King Jesus, is the king, the ruler, and the sovereign. Which is one of the reasons I'm totally convinced the Lord chooses a monarchy in the Old Testament to communicate how he rules and how he intends to rule. And by the way, when the Lord returns, it's not going to be a constitutional republic. You're not going to get to vote. You're not going to get a choice. 
the Lord Jesus will return and he will set up a kingdom. And he will be the king. And we will worship at his feet and bring the produce of the nations before him into the heavenly city. Because he is king. He was and he is and he always will be. He sits as the sole ruler over his universe. And then he creates us as image bearers to be vice regents. Which means we have a powerful role to execute in the creation mandate. And redeemed in Christ, it is a missionary call to execute our created wiring and our vocations to bring it under the rule of King Jesus. He's the ruler. Jesus rules over all things. I'll give you just a couple examples. Job 36, 32. This one is highlighted in my Bible for multiple reasons. And those who know me for a while know the little story here. And some of you will laugh because you watched this happen and you still make fun of me for it, although it was a deadly moment. A little lightning strike. And me, yes, people laugh at me for that. Keith Thompson, where are you? Keith, Keith may be gone on vacation, but Keith laughs at me and he knows. And he's repent, believe the gospel. Just kidding. It was kind of funny now that I'm alive and okay. He shouldn't feel guilty, maybe. <clears throat> Job 36, 32, he covers his hands with the lightning and he commands it to strike the mark. I believe that, even though he struck me with some, right? He commands the forces of nature. Listen to this one, Job 37, 10 to 13. I have a funny story about this passage because, well, I won't tell you this story. It was in graduate school, some guy with his kingdom kit, which is the guy who had the briefcase in graduate school. And then there was us who had torn jeans and flip-flops and T-shirts. And then the guys who wore their suits to class, and we called them kingdom warriors, and he had a kingdom kit. But Sorry. A little bit of a rebel right here, if you couldn't tell. So this kingdom warrior was arguing that the Lord, anyway, he was arguing bad stuff. He needed to repent, but... Just here's what it says. I'm just going to let you land with it. I believe it. I don't think he did. But anyway, Job 37, 10 and 13. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them in the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or... Or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. The king has never dropped the ball on ruling even the forces of nature. That puts you in a funny place as a Christian when you have to respond to difficult things in the world. But it also puts you in a place to land your feet on solid ground and say, you want to be on the good side of that? You want to be able to land your feet in a place where you know it's working for your good? Repent and believe in Jesus. Because the flip side of Romans 8.28 is true too. That if you're not in Christ, it's not working for your good. There is an eternal thing coming, right? And so, and so recognize that he is king and ruler and has never dropped his scepter. He rules today, right? So what do we do with this stuff that we learn about the Lord? What do we do with the knowledge of King Jesus, Yahweh, who creates? Well, number one, we know our place. We know our place. We are not God. He is God. Psalm 50, 21, remember? You thought I was like you. Thought I was like you. We know our place. We are creature. Jesus is sovereign king. So we know our place. Our place is not to receive. Our place is to give. 
Right? This, this has application in the local church. Our job is not to receive praise, but to give praise. Our job is not to receive, it's to give away. He is king, he is ruler, and we owe to him a life of worship. Right? Not just our songs, but our actions and our thoughts are his. He's not us, we're not him. We're creature, he is Lord and king. Number two. We now begin to have a framework to recognize false and dark counter-narratives that have something other than Jesus as their king. As you grow in your understanding of the Lord through reading your Bible, you'll start to be able to compare and contrast narratives that are false. Stories, right? And the only way you're going to be able to recognize those is to know the Lord well. That's, a, that's, even, a, that's even a sermon in and of itself is recognizing different narratives and even understanding narrative is how God works in the world. But, Sorry, that's, you begin to recognize truth from error, lies from right. And it is the Lord himself that sets that apart. Number three, we learn how to revere, to honor, to exalt, and defer to God's word. We learn how to honor God's word, exalt God's word, defer to God's word because his word is powerful. This begins to make us aware of fixed realities that determine fixed ethics. Scripture then becomes how we think, the framework in which we think. One of my dear friends, and some of you guys have had the privilege to spend some time around him and learn from him, is Omar Reyes. You guys who know Omar know Omar, he speaks in Bible. And it's not funky, weird, kind of like you might imagine somebody that can't fit in. This is a Marine. This is a guy who's Palestinian, Belizean in descent. He's cool as a day is long. He's, I've never seen him do anything uncool. And he's tough as nails. He's a man's man. And when this dude talks, Omar just speaks Bible in the coolest way I can ever imagine. I want to be like him. His whole framework comes from Scripture. And sometimes even his language is seasoned with a word or two from a passage, making application to it when he's talking to you. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it's not Omar showing off. It's Omar walking in the Spirit. Why? Because God's Word is powerful. He knows that. He lives by it. It is the framework of his life. And Scripture is how he thinks we need to be like that. Because God's Word is powerful. I sent the pastors this morning an article from Fox News. And it's a a link to a little documentary on the church in Iran. And if you'd like it, email me. I'll send you the link. Or you can just go search for it and find it. But the church in Iran has no buildings. They have nothing. Nothing. And it is growing and it is multiplying and it is mostly led by women. Why? Because God's word is powerful. Because the gospel is powerful. The gospel knows no bounds. No regime can throttle it. No regime can contain it. No amount of laws can push it out. When God's people speak the decrees of God and speak the powerful word of God, it creates It accomplishes the purpose for which God sent it forth. We don't need anything to replace the powerful word of God. We just need to uncage it. We learn to revere God's word and speak it and preach it and obey it. Number four, we honor and defend life as vice regents of Jesus. God has set us over life, all of it. And we have responsibility to honor it. All of it. Steward, created life, and love, respect, honor, protect human life. All of it. 
all of it, all the time, at every moment. Number five, we are then careful to worship God as holy. In other words, we worship the Lord and we are careful in our worship to make sure the object of our affection is Jesus. This is what the Bible means by fear Yahweh, fear the Lord. I'm afraid that an awful lot of our context struggles with the concept of the fear of God because of the sinful nature of man and and, and the use of terror and fear as synonyms. And that's not what the Bible means by fear. It means the respectful, transcendent treating of Yahweh as separate and absolutely holy. Honoring, revering, bowing down to, submitting to the Lord. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And this is the sweet spot for worship as Christians. This sweet spot of fear, yet understanding that He is also near and working for my good, should create in us a little tension. And it's supposed to... Listen, I'm going to stop right here because this is where we're going to go. I only got two more points left, but this is good. This This is a place to stop. Your life is to be lived in tension. You're to never be comfortable with just your mere understanding of things. When you come out of your Bible, you're going to be left with the fear of the Lord and the nearness of the Lord. And and that creates this sort of, do do I go? Yes. How fast? Do Just go. Okay, how far do I go? I don't know. Just go. And, and there's a little bit of an unknown tension. And how near do I get? And, and do I, yeah, I come near, but how near and how close? I, and, and so there's just sort of like, I want to go close, but I'm a little, hmm, he's king. So it's just like, okay, let's say the president walked in this room. Chances are none of y'all going to walk up and say, yo, what's up, hoss? High-fiving, giving him a bro hug and chest bump because the Secret Service is going to put you on the ground and chicken wing you and boom, you're, you're done, Right? Because you've just walked in the presence of a world leader. Any king, any president in this world, you're just going to walk up and high-five them. There's an honor code and a reverence code on how you act in front of people. Does that make sense? And, 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 and that is to be a framework that we understand the king, the ruler of the universe, is he is imminent and he is near, yet he's transcendent and holy. And so there's this sense, come to the Lord, but fear the Lord, meaning we don't just crawl up in his lap, but we don't fail to come either. Which creates this posture of worship. Right? It creates this place where we come near, but we recognize you're king and I'm not. You're not me, I'm not you. But you beckoned me to come, so I'm coming. And there's a joy, and there's a reverence in it, and we are to live in that tension, and that is Christian worship. Not too cozy, but not far off. And you say, get clear, I can't, the Bible doesn't get any clearer than that. You have to work your salvation out in fear and trembling with that. Right? Right? And so, so that's Christian worship, is we know the Lord, and there's this like, okay, which is why in the Bible often the posture of worship is falling down. I'm going to worship you, but I'm going to come, but I'm just going to make sure, you know, huh, hmm, don't get me. And which is why we come and trust Jesus, because I'm in Christ, he won't get me. And so I'm going to come, which is why we don't forget to talk about Jesus, because Jesus is the access, right? And so there's this fear, this awe, and yet at the same time, this, I want to come. I want to come to you. And so, you know what? We've, we've learned a little about the Lord this morning, so you want to invite you to do is practice that. Let's practice, right? Why do we beat our mercy 44 to 6 Friday? 
because of practice, didn't you, boys? You're hurting. Still hurting, but you worked, right? You worked hard. Sack. Fumble recovery. Right there. Some hits in the backfield sitting in the room today, right? Some good stuff. Some, some beautiful team training happening and taping ACLs and fixing good stuff, right? Because they worked on it, right? You had to practice to perform. You know what? We're going to spend an eternity worshiping the Lord Jesus in our lives and in our songs. And it's Christian duty to practice in corporate worship. So why don't you just view what we're about to do as practice. Right? Just practice. So what I'm going to do is pray. The band's going to come, and they're going to lead us in practicing how we worship the Lord in response to who He is. And we've learned 12 things that He is. And by the way, that's only scratching the surface. Just scratching the surface. So let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, help us to worship You well today. Help us to sing to You well today. Not because we sing good, but because we come with all that we are, and we want to lay it before You as a pleasing sacrifice to You. We want to give You the best we have today. So help us to do it well. Jesus, your creator. And even now you speak and you sustain all of creation by your powerful word. You heal, you fix. Lord Jesus, when you spoke it, even from a distance, created order had to obey. So, Lord, even now I ask that in these moments as we worship you in song, maybe worship happens in some other ways where we, where we obey you and obey your word. You be king over that. But I ask that, Lord, you'd speak healing to, that you would speak holiness to, that you would speak deliverance from, that you would speak restoration to, that you would, in this time, do something that is only something you can do. We don't want to manufacture anything. We want your word to be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Hide it deep in our hearts so we might not sin against you. We want the guide. So Holy Spirit, remind us of everything that's been said in your word. And do all those things we've asked you to do as we come to bring you the fruit of lips that bless, that praise your name. As we practice our eternal activity of worship. Would you be pleased to do those things today for your glory and for our joy.